And happy Mother's Day to our ladies. And we have a bunch of stems of flowers that some young men are eager to hand out to all the married ladies at the end of the service. So if you are a married woman, do not leave here without a flower. And as I page through here, it strikes me more and more, our last men's theology night, we ended up on the topic of family and marriage and motherhood. And just, it strikes me more and more the glory that God has baked into femininity. Uh, And that is the case whether a woman is married or has children or not. But femininity is truly a glory. And I think as Christians, this is one place where we have kind of an unspoken apologetic strength is to show the strength of masculinity, to show the glory of femininity is truly a beautiful thing. So God bless you to all your mothers and kids. Make sure you're extra helpful for mom today and then every day afterward. (laughs) We are in Matthew 10 and we're going to pick up at verse 26. And once you're there, then I will ask you to stand as we read God's word together. And these are the inerrant words of God. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered fear not therefore you are of more for you are of more value than many sparrows so everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven but whoever denies me before men I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven And may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we're picking up here again to retrace a little bit so we remember where we are in the story. Jesus has very recently commissioned the apostles to start preaching their way through Israel. And he has given them a clear warning about the kind of treatment that they are going to face. He warns them about persecution and mistreatment and of their need to persevere. And he's just warned them about how they're going to be handed over and stand before trials to various authorities. In verse 24 and 25, he told them that this shouldn't be surprising. Students should not expect better treatment than the teacher. Servants should not expect to be treated better than the master. And if the scoffers and the persecutors are accusing Christ of being in league with Beelzebul, or Satan, or the Lord of the Flies. If anyone's read the story, Lord of the Flies, that's where this word comes from. Then they shouldn't be surprised if they get similar treatment. So verse 26, where we're picking up this morning, isn't a new thought on a new sermon, but a continuation of the same discussion that we've been looking at all through chapter 10. And it starts here in verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. For whatever reason, old rock lyrics just were flowing in my head this week, so I'm going to have to get them out of here. But Bob Dylan correctly said that we have to serve somebody. Fear is an inescapable concept. Everybody in this room fears something. 
Voltaire said correctly during the French Revolution, if you want to find out who rules over you, uncover who you're not allowed to criticize. Okay? Whoever you're not allowed to make fun of, that's your God. That's your God. Think about it. Fear is inevitable. Everyone fears somebody. Everybody serves somebody. And fear can come in various forms. It can be a sense of respect and reverence if we love the one we serve. Or it can be anxious and servile if we are at war against the one we're serving. And the proper place of fear is the reverent respect we have for the God who has adopted us into his family. This is not an anxious or a scary fear, but it gives, it's fear in the sense of it's awe. It's awesome. It's majestic. It's reverent. It's respectful. And this kind of fear ultimately is given properly to God. There are lesser authorities in our lives, like moms and dads and governments and church elders and, and other people that are legitimate authorities in our lives. But in the ultimate final sense, we fear God. Man never deserves our ultimate and final allegiance. But this is warning about the fear of man in the sense of trying to please man as opposed to pleasing God. And men frequently work with manipulation and fear. And this is why Christ is drawing attention for how easy it is for people to betray one another under times of persecution. It's easy to turn your back when fear tactics are being used. And the reason that persecutors resort to persecution is because they themselves are scared. If you want the psychology of fear tactics, it's only used by cowards. Idolaters tend to be fearful people, and this is for good reason. It makes sense that idolaters are fearful people. They know that their gods are impotent. They know that their gods will not answer them. They know justly that they are under the wrath and the judgment of the living God of heaven and earth. And because they cannot reach up high enough to kill him, they'll do it with his servants in effigy. This is the psychology of persecution. This is what's happening. You can't get to your enemy, so you print a picture of him off, put it on your target, and start taking target practice at the image. This is the psychology of persecution. The guilty conscience is in constant turmoil, looking for coping mechanisms. And this is why people who are at war with God cannot tolerate any reminders of reality. All dissenting voices must be shut up. Every point of dissent must be silenced. And I remember, I've shared this story with some of you before. Uh, I remember in the mission series, The Insanity of God by Nip Gripen, he, he talks to a lady who was persecuted and tortured under the former Soviet Union. And this was a small woman, maybe 100, 120 pounds, who was bringing Bibles into the former Soviet Union. And this woman got imprisoned and tortured for that. And think of the insanity of that. One of the top two world powers with all the missiles, all the tanks, all the jets, all the bombs, all the nukes, is threatened by a woman that I could easily carry. She's threatening. She's scary. They know their gods are impotent. Their gods will not answer them. That's why a 100-pound woman is a threat who must be tortured into silence. We have this in lesser forms today. In Sunday school, we were talking about the mandatory celebration that we're all going to be catechized in next month when every corporation and every sports team changes its logo to a rainbow. And you have to weep tears of joy and give polite applause for sexual perversion. 
Every mouth must be shut up. Serve our God with us. Because if even one person holds out, that's a reminder of the wrath of God. That's a reminder that these people are at war against the living God. So no dissent can be offered. These persecutors are like the Wizard of Oz. Scary and opposing and making big claims until you realize he's just a little man with a megaphone. When we as Christians find the courage to quit fearing these people, we're going to find out that it's a lot easier than we first thought. We are sons and daughters of the living God, and so fear makes absolutely no sense for us. It does make sense, it should make sense, if we're working with a biblical mindset, why idolaters are intimidated by reminders of the living God. It makes no sense for us, however, to be intimidated by impotent idols. I always remember Elijah and the the contest with the prophets of Baal. When the gods don't answer, what do they do? They cut deeper. They hurt themselves more. They cry out longer. They get more and more elaborate. But their God is not listening because he's not there. Why would we fear something that's not there? We're people of God, after all. We can go out and know that we don't need to resort to threats and coercions because we're not operating out of fear. We can be calm and confident and resolved because we know, if we are sons and daughters of God, God, that we are on his side, on the side of the living God. And this is why it's not a mistake when we compare true and false religions that it's Islam that has the sword as their logo. And we have a cross of suffering. This makes sense. The gospel does not advance by the sword because we are not scared people. We are not frightened people. Our gospel goes out by the cross. Jesus says that everything that is covered is going to be revealed and everything that is hidden will be known. And this works both on the side of righteousness and on the side of unrighteousness for Christ and his enemies. As Jesus' ministry is going to get more and more public as we move through the gospel, the truth is going to be revealed and made known. So not only is Christ going to be vindicated by his resurrection and ascension, which we're going to talk about next week is Ascension Sunday. As an aside, I was about halfway through writing that sermon on Thursday, and I looked at my calendar and I said, oh no, (laughs) I, I have to write a sermon for something I haven't even read yet. I was a week early. But we're going to look at Ascension Sunday next week. And this is important in terms of the vindication of Jesus Christ and his authority and his claims of authority over all things. So Christ will be vindicated as his ministry gets more public. But the truth about his enemies is going to be uncovered as well. This last week I heard about an organization that had a bunch of property stolen and they had cameras up on their their yard and they saw exactly who had taken their stuff. There was a good shot of the guy's face who had done this. And they went to social media, not with the pictures, but just with the threat of the pictures. And they said, we know who took our stuff. We've got camera footage. Whoever did it, if you want to be saved from the shame of doing it, return it. And if not, in three days, the pictures of your face are going to be all over social media. And their goods were returned. It worked. The threat of having our dark deeds uncovered is a powerful and legitimate fear. There's a story that's told of a prankster who sent anonymous letters to 20 powerful businessmen and political leaders in his town. And all he said was, everything about you is known. Get out of town at once. And all 20 of these men left. The point is, everyone has skeletons in their closet. Everyone has a reason to be scared 
of the living God. We know that everything is going to be revealed and uncovered. And so this provides the basis on which we needn't ever fear our fellow men. They're scared as well. We have our covering in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we must fear God if we are going to be vindicated when all things are revealed. Having your deeds uncovered is no threat if your sins are forgiven and you are standing in right relationship with the living God. We have nothing to fear. In verse 27 and 28, he goes on, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so as we work through the course of Jesus' life, we are seeing this gradual move from humiliation to exaltation. From dust to glory, as some have noticed. There is a pattern of Jesus telling people to keep his miracles and his identity quiet earlier on, but the, the publicity of it gets more and more. We were reminded just a few chapters back in Matthew 8, verse 4, where Jesus says, don't tell anyone, don't talk about this. But by the end of his life, it's clearly visible and public. He is gradually becoming more open. And as we keep going through the Bible, we're going to see how he keeps getting more and more public. And this is going to build more and more pressure until the moment of his crucifixion. And Christ applies the same strategy to the apostles. As time goes on, the word needs to get out further and further. Yes, it starts small. Yes, it starts at one small geographic location. But this is not how it is to remain. A few weeks ago, somebody messaged me uh, and asked how I understood the verse uh, of John 14, 12, which says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. What are these greater works? The person who had asked me had been in contact with somebody who was part of the kind of charismatic or word of faith movement. And so they had understood this to say greater works. We're going to perform greater miracles. Uh, And as I understood it, this person was using this verse as a justification to kind of move into mystical practices to discern the word of God for their life. And that's how they understood the greater works. But I would suggest it's very difficult for us to top miracles like casting out demons, healing lepers, or raising people from the dead. Our works will not be greater than that. How could they be? So what's happening? When Jesus tells his followers that they're going to do greater works than them, I don't think he's speaking about the intensity of the acts themselves, but about the scope of the gospel message. The greater works refer to the fact that the gospel is going to spread across the world through the preaching of the apostles. These are greater works in quantity, not in terms of quality. We get the same picture in verse 27. Jesus' ministry is confined to this one small geographic region, probably about 30 miles from one end to the other is as big a geographic area as Jesus covered in his earthly ministry. But when he sends out the 12, there's traditions that Andrew got as far north as Great Britain. And Thomas to India. And down into Ethiopia. These are the greater works. From humiliation to exaltation. From dust to glory. This is the the pattern that Jesus sends them out on. Everything is going to be uncovered. Get the word out. The gospel and God's purposes for his creation keep coming into sharper and sharper focus as the borders of his kingdom keep pushing further out. Jesus talks lots in the gospel of Matthew about his kingdom. And I, I agree with Calvin here where he says that the work of the kingdom, that is 
our work as Christians is to turn the invisible into the visible. This is kingdom work, seeing the rule and reign of Jesus, making the invisible claims into visible reality. Spiritual and theological truths are not to stay in the invisible world of ideas behind your eyes, but are to become more and more manifest in the physical world as we love our wives well, as we raise little children to the glory of Jesus Christ, as we build businesses, as we work to the glory of God, as children respect their mother. So what starts in a quiet conversation along the back roads of Israel is to be yelled from the housetops once the time is right. And Christ is indicating to his followers that they are fast approaching that time. As the gospel gets out and becomes more public, the intensity of the opposition will also increase. And the opposition is going to move from difficult, heated exchanges to actually killing people. It's going to escalate rather quickly. But even here, Jesus tells his 12 not to fear man. What's the worst that can happen? Everybody has to die from something. Okay? And so if you get an early promotion, why is that so terrible? Some of us who are, have a little more gray hair or a little less hair might remember the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a tremendously interesting writer and speaker in the days of the former Soviet Union. And as a dissident against communism, he spoke about the tactics and the evil in the USSR. And that ended up, him ended up in the gulags, getting tortured and getting mistreated and imprisoned. And after his release, he was asked how he endured the torture. And his answer was that the tools of torture could only hurt his body. The communists had no access to his mind whatsoever. And so he said, they can do what they want to my body. I need to focus on making my mind and my soul well. And I think there is Christian wisdom in this. When everything is laid bare, when every secret is out in the open, it is God alone who has the power over body and soul. The power of hell is a power that no man has over another. It is reserved for those who refuse to bend the knee to the crown rights of Christ the King. And I won't focus on this aspect, but we've discussed it, and I feel if we are going to lead well, if we're going to shepherd people well, we must touch on the things around us. This power of hell. In light of the rise of annihilationist teaching around us, I feel at least the need to point this out. Some have taught that the word destroy in this sentence here, indicates that the soul and the body both cease to exist. They're annihilated. They just go out of existence upon death. And we sometimes use the word in that sense. Last night we brought some wings home for supper and we destroyed them. As in, they were gone once we were finished destroying them. So there is a way in which we sometimes use the words that way. And it has also been taught that since bodies die and decay, the same must be true of the soul. After all, your body turns to dust, why can't the soul do the same thing? And the resurrection means that even unbelievers do get a a reunification of body and soul. Even unbelievers are resurrected physically, but it is not to glory, it is to shame. So the torment in the lake of fire is just as much a physical reality as the new creation is for believers. The torment in the lake of fire is just as physical as it is spiritual. And further, the word destroy here is used in the infinitive tense in Greek, meaning an ongoing, never-ending action. 
This kind of destruction, once you are 150,000 years into the torment of it, and you look up at the clock, not one second has passed. You do not want this outcome. Okay? This is the God who destroys. This is what his destruction looked like. It is a never-ending, it is an everlasting action. That is who we need to fear. The one who has the keys over that. So we are not to fear man. Since man ultimately has no power over another man's destiny. And men only resort to using fear tactics when they themselves are fearful. But we are to fear God. Since he has ultimate dominion over both body and soul. And Jesus goes on in verse 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And sometimes we pull this teaching out as though it's unrelated to what's in front of it and what's behind it. So first Jesus is talking about fearing God and not man. And now he talks for a little bit about God's providence. And then he's going to go back to talking about fear. So did Jesus kind of get bored of his topic and then he just switched gears for a little bit? So he could give some ammunition for people to discuss Calvinism and Arminianism for eons. And then he goes back to his main point. Not at all. Not at all. The doctrine of God's providence is deeply tied to fear and to persecution. I've told the story a number of years ago. Our kids at the bus stop were crossing the 311, which is a pretty busy road. And the bus was parked on the far side, so they have to cross right over. And as our kids were getting around the front of the bus, a Suburban was barreling past on the shoulder. And the bus driver lay on the horn and Clint stopped maybe 10 inches before that Suburban hit him. It's a very close call. Had he stepped out one second sooner, that could have been it for him. And we talk then about the providence of God, how God spared him. And that's true. We got an update about Jeremy's friend, Rob Reimer, who seems to be recovering from brain cancer. And we also see that this is the providence of God. But here's the difficult question. What if Clint was hit? What if Rob Reimer does die from brain cancer? What if we remember the images of 21 Egyptian Christians getting hauled out onto a beach and beheaded? Where's your God now? Where's your God? One of our own poets asked in a song, Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Where's the love of God? Where's God's providence when it doesn't turn out the way we'd like? It's not a mistake that Christ is teaching on the providence and sovereignty of God in the middle of talking about fear and opposition and persecution. The teaching here is clear. Jesus takes the most mundane and important thing, an unimportant thing, a sparrow which is worth half a penny, and says that even down at that level of detail, that that sparrow cannot fall apart from the will of its father. And we tend to pull the punch when it comes to God's sovereignty and to God's providence with passages like this. We'll soften it. We'll say, well, God knows, or God sees, or God is present in your suffering. And he most certainly is. But this is not teaching that he is a passive spectator watching it going down. 
One funeral I know of featured a minister who talked quite openly about the fact that the person laying in the coffin here, God did not want that person to die. But here he is dead. He spoke in terms of God's providence as though, well, God's just the ambulance that's the first to show up. That's God's providence. He just sees it and he responds as quickly as he can. But if that's the way the world works, friends, you should be scared. Then fear makes sense. Then things happen without meaning. If things are happening that God did not in some sense decree, this means that the ultimate master of the universe is either random chance, cold hard fate, or maybe, worse yet, maybe Satan is running the affairs of the world. John MacArthur tells a story of a prosperity preacher in Los Angeles who died, and this man's children started coming to John MacArthur's church, who was preaching quite something different than what this prosperity gospeler was preaching. He finally asked these kids, so I know who your dad was. I know we're at opposite ends of the Christian world here in L.A. Why are you here? And these kids said, well, we had a prophet come through, and the prophet told my dad that he was destined for worldwide global fame in his ministry. And a week later, my dad died of a heart attack. And so we asked the prophet, was this a false prophecy? And the answer was, no, it was not a false prophecy. That was, in fact, God's intention. But Satan was so threatened by this man that Satan killed him contra God's will. Imagine for a minute living in that world if that was true. Satan is winning battle after battle against the Lord of heaven and earth. These kids started to have heart palpitations and anxiety problems, and I would say rightly so. If Satan is winning the arm wrestle against God at any point, we live in a terrifying universe, and you should have anxiety. It would make sense to be anxious in that world. Mercifully, that world does not exist. Jesus says here, even a sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from the Father. And this is meticulous providence, meticulous sovereignty. And the the goal of all good theology isn't just to store it up in our heads, it's to use it pastorally. Good theology is good pastoral care. We need to be reminded about God and his care for the little things like the sparrow. And Jesus says we're worth much more than that. God's providence is active at all times in your life. God is guiding the sparrow from cradle to grave, so how much more is he caring for you? And in my own case, perhaps one of my own biggest strengths and weaknesses is that I am insistent on consistency. And for me, it did take an anxious, nervous breakdown to get me to see this. My theology had no answer to the suffering in my life. And it was through suffering that God was kind And my mind shifted. And that doesn't mean I don't struggle with anxiety anymore. And just being a Christian doesn't mean you won't. But it does mean we have tools to fight back. Our brain can tell our heart things that it's having struggle to believe if we internalize these truths from Scripture. This is the kind of providence that makes verses like Romans 8.28 possible. That all things are working for our good. We just sang, Christ the story, His the glory. That is the controlling principle of the universe. Christ is the story. He's the point. So all things are working together for his glory and our good, even the difficult parts. 
The reason we are taught on God's providence here by Jesus in the midst of a message on suffering and fear is because God's providence is the antidote to fear. This is how we fight back, brothers and sisters, with a strong doctrine of God's providence. We're not facing things by accident. God is teaching us. He is putting us in the ringer so that we can learn. And so when we face suffering, we know that God is doing something good for us. And we know that he is intent on his eternal satisfaction and our eternal joy. If we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear, no matter how bad the circumstances. Question one in the Heidelberg Catechism sums this truth up gloriously. Some of you are familiar with it. The question number one, Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Can we say amen to that? Verse 32, it goes on. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so we've seen that we are not to fear men. We are not to cave into their tactics. For they themselves are weak and fearful. And the weaker they are, the more fearful they become. It has been well said That if people think strong men are dangerous, just wait till you see what weak men are capable of. And is that not absolutely true? Look at the havoc. Look at the hellscape that weak men have unleashed on this planet. We are not to fear men, but God alone. And we can also find comfort in his attention to the smallest details for what our days will hold ahead of us. The apostles are going to face off against religious leaders, against idolaters, and against the most powerful and enduring empire on earth. And they win. Eleven guys versus the Roman Empire. And in 300 short years, some have said that the citizens of the Roman Empire were as high as 65% Christian. That's what faithfulness does in the light of persecution. You can kill us. We talked about this last week, Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs of the seed of the church. You kill one, four more come up. You kill those four, now you're dealing with 32 of us. You cannot stop this with persecution. If people are willing to stand fast, courage begets courage, and the gospel does its work. Our victory is paid with the sacrifice of those who have gone on behind. On ahead of us. And as Don read in Deuteronomy 8, what so often happens, and this we need to be wary of in all generations, what so often happens is the sacrifice and the commitment and the hard work and the faithfulness of those who have gone before us means that we're born on third, thinking we hit a triple, thinking, what a good boy am I. Look at what my hands built. Just the other day I was talking with someone about my great-grandmother who I never got to meet. She was a poor widow woman. And I just went through my head, between her great-grandchildren, how many acres of land and how many cows do we milk in the southeast? This was a woman who fought to survive. And her great-grandchildren hold 
all kinds of stuff that I doubt she could have dreamed of. So we can do one of two things with that. We can say, look what I built. Look what these hands did. Wrong. Look at the sacrifices that other people made so we can enjoy something. Look at the faithfulness of God. Okay? And for me, it's farming. For you, it'll be something else. For you, it's going to be something else. Be thankful for the commitment that those who have gone before you have made. Every blessing you have, you received as a gift. I'll blame my head being full with rock lyrics on Alistair Begg. Because this last week, he talked about Tom Petty's song, I Won't Back Down. And how Tom Petty did not back down against the music industry. And that's just a small sampling of the apostles not backing down. Sure, they got wobbly. Sure, they wavered at times, like Peter. But ultimately, they stood before men and acknowledged their Father in heaven. And they went on to their reward of being acknowledged by Christ as well. Those who deny Christ under pressure show that they are like the seed that pops up quickly, but because the root of the matter is not in them, they fall away just as fast as they sprung up. Christ does not belong to those cowards and apostates who deny him. And when they face the court of God, Christ will be there to testify and turn his face away and say, I never knew that guy. I don't know him. Off with you. Okay? And if we do stand, he is proud to say, this is my son, this is my daughter. Let him in. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. In real life history, this plays out in more recent history, long after the Bible and many years before us. Perhaps some of you have heard of the great English martyrs, Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer. All in the Church of England. And the Church of England kept bouncing back and forth between being Protestant and Catholic as the monarchs changed. And when Bloody Mary took the throne, the writing was on the wall for what happens if you're an evangelical minister in the Church of England. It's time to move to Switzerland, and quick. And many did. But some said, no. We are not leaving when the Church of England needs reform. And so Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer stayed. Latimer and Ridley got burnt together. They got tied to a stake together for their work. They died on the same day in the same fire. And Ridley was the first to strengthen his friend. He said, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. Something's going to happen here. Either God stops the fire, or the fire is our promotion. But either way, not a sparrow can fall. Nothing is happening here by mistake, brother. And as the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer had his turn. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, and everyone else around, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, that I trust will never be put out. And the friend Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church, was forced to watch this. And he was more or less a faithful man. To this day, the Church of England uses the 39 articles, which are faithful, evangelical, Protestant confession. The Church of England is a faithful church in her documents, much because of Thomas Cranmer. And he was forced to watch his friends burn to death. But he was a man with a much more feeble constitution. He wavered. And privately, after the fire, he recanted his evangelical faith. And he was asked to explain and make public his recantation at the University Church in Oxford. 
So he climbed up the pulpit to explain to everyone why he recanted the evangelical faith and why he was going back to be a faithful Roman Catholic. And again, he got feeble and weary, and he regretted his private recantation. So he went up and proclaimed the glory of God in the gospel of free grace as proudly as any man could. And he got pulled out of that pulpit, dragged off to get burned. And as he was thrown into the flames, the first thing he did was put his hand that signed his recantation in the, hand, in the fire. This hand signed my recantation. This has to be the first thing to burn. And he died as a faithful martyr despite his early wavering. Three years later, Bloody Mary died and passed the kingdom to her half-sister Elizabeth, a Protestant queen, and Latimer and Ridley's torch, or candle, did indeed burst into a torch. The ministers came back, uh, and what we know as Victorian England was born. Christian England was born. The lasting faithfulness of men like this paved the way for centuries of lasting gospel proclamation. And so our challenge this morning is this. Our circumstances are always different. Sometimes the, light, the gospel seems dimmer and sometimes brighter. And we can't help where we're born. But I want to encourage everyone here, even if you're really young, maybe especially if you're really young, live as though you're going to have great-grandchildren. Think about it. Be faithful. How are you going to bless people who are not yet born? How is your courage, how is your steadfast confession to your Lord Jesus Christ going to bless your great-grandchildren? Are you going to stand the test and pass your faith down? Or are you going to make compromises with the world around you? Are you going to fear man and watch that candle slowly get snuffed out? And my challenge to us this morning, church, is to be faithful. Stand the test. We don't know where we're going to be tested. We really don't. But when that time comes, stand firm. Play the man and see what God will do. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are so intent on blessing us that even when we waver, even when we falter, you are still kind. Lord, help us to remember what we read in Deuteronomy 8 this morning, that we should never take credit for your gifts. We should never get proud. We should never take it easy. We should never start to use up the resources that have been left for us, but that we should leverage them always for more faithfulness always for greater use in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for each one here, when we are tempted to fear man, when we are tempted to make compromises, when we are tempted to listen to fools and to follow cowards, Lord, help us to remain steadfast. Help us to remember that we have nothing to fear. Anxiety makes no sense if you are providentially sustaining the world. Anxiety makes no sense if our sins are forgiven. We have nothing to fear. So Lord, help us to walk in the things which you say are already true of us as daughters and sons of you. Lord, be with us, guide us this week and in the weeks ahead. Lord, we trust that we will be a candle that shines light on your gospel, that is a consistent witness to your faithfulness and your goodness and your intent to save all those who call on your name. Lord, guide us, keep us, Encourage us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.